So I want to try and build a case today that uh, Jesus was actually transfigured at Mount Hermon. And to remind you, if you weren't with us last week, Jesus was just with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them a big question. It was about the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God manifests itself. He said, who do men say I am? And they said, Christ of, of God. And he then gives them eight days to climb that mountain. Now remember, back in Caesarea Philippi, there were temples set up to the other gods who demanded sacrifices, like Hades and, and Pan. They demanded that the, the worshippers sacrifice to them. Jesus begins to describe a God and a kingdom that's not about other people sacrificing for him as much as God comes to earth to sacrifice for them. He then says to them, so deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. He then takes them up over this hill, just on the other side of the hill, way up 9,000 feet to the top of Mount Tabor to show them what the kingdom of God is like. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke tonight. Imagine with me that your, uh, your grandfather pulls you aside and he says, I've got a, a family heirloom I'd like to give you. This family heirloom was given to me by my grandfather and it was given to him by his grandfather. This is incredibly valuable. It is incredibly precious, almost unfathomable how much it's worth. And of all the grandchildren... I have decided to give it to you. And you're like, man, thanks, Grandpa. Then you're like, valuable? Unfathomable worth? Antiques are antiques. Ah, so you say thanks nicely to Grandpa, and then you go home and set it on the shelf. And there it sits. For weeks, months, years. <laughs> a couple years later, your grandpa is passing away and he's lying in the bed at hospice. It's a very tearful moment. You wonder if you have hours, maybe a few days left. You go down to give grandpa a hug and you're crying with him and just having a moment with grandpa. And he leans over, doesn't have a lot of voice left. And he whispers in your ear, you won't know how valuable it is unless you break it. And you head home that evening. I wonder if he's talking about that valuable heirloom they gave me years ago. So you go and you pick this thing up and you're like, you won't know how valuable it is unless you break it. Should I or shouldn't I? And you drop it. It shatters all over the floor. And it reveals, sure enough, a crown from a dynasty of something you've never seen before. In fact, you pick up this crown and it is beautiful. It's, it's, it's recognizable but foreign at the same time. It has beautiful five jewels in it which have colors like a technicolor a dream coat you may have seen before, but, but yellows and blues and reds. And as you're holding it, it begins to glow. Not like glow stick glow or lightning bug glow, like 
piercing light, lasers into my eyes kind of go, and you recognize whatever this kingdom is, whatever this breaking has revealed, it is unfathomable. It is, it, it, you almost can't even look at it, it's so bright, like lasers piercing out in all directions. You realize this, this has come from a whole new place in a whole new world. And then it strikes you. It's been sitting on your shelf for years. You have been in possession and in the presence of unfathomable value, but you didn't see it or know it until it was broken. Jesus, before taking his disciples to Mount Hermon, says something very interesting. He says, I'm going to tell you truly that there are some of you standing here, disciples, not all, by the way, just some, there are some of you standing here who are not going to taste death until you see what the kingdom of God is like. And there are several Greek words for see, some of which means to uh, the opposite of being blind. He doesn't use that word. To look attentively, to see, it's not that word. To watch as a spectator, huh. He uses the word in Greek, ido, which means to come to know or understand. There's some of you here that are going to come and have a full appreciation for the possession and the reality of the kingdom before you die. And I think Luke includes this here because what happens on Mount Hermon is a fulfillment of exactly this. Jesus is going to allow himself to be broken. Have he just said... The way my kingdom spreads is the, the Messiah needs to suffer, die, and you too, deny yourself, be broken, take up your cross, be broken daily, and that's what will release the kingdom. He then takes them on a journey, and I want to take you on that journey to three mountains. There are really three parts of the same mountain. We're going to go to Journey Mountain, then we're going to go to Snow Mountain, and we're going to end on Tabernacle Mountain. And trying to experience who God is and what this kingdom is all about. The first mountain is Process Mountain because they leave Caesarea Philippi and they're thinking about brokenness. I mean, how would you value brokenness if brokenness revealed to you that you were in the possession and presence of unfathomable value? You might start saying brokenness, some good things come from brokenness. Some good things came into my life because of brokenness. I might value brokenness differently if it revealed things I wouldn't have seen otherwise. So he, he takes them to Journey Mountain. Here at Journey Mountain, just up the mountain from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus often, after saying some radical statement or something really stunning, would say, Guys, let's go for a hike. And for eight days, they're crunch crunch, crunch the way up the mountain. Thinking about that, the Messiah must die. It says for eight days as they're crunching their way around the mountain, they're thinking about these sayings. He's the Christ, but he doesn't want us to tell people. Because, he said, the Christ must suffer and die and be raised again. And if anyone wants to follow after him, so I want to follow after him, I need to deny myself. What does it look like to deny myself? Do I currently deny myself? 
and I need to take up my cross. Eight days. What is my cross? What does it mean to take up a cross? Am I doing it daily? And for eight days, Peter, James, and John, three people, went up to the mountain to pray. And they're wrestling with this idea. Does brokenness, the brokenness of the Messiah, us being broken by denying ourselves and taking up our cross, is that really what reveals the unfathomable value of the kingdom of God? If so, do I embrace brokenness or resist it? So what were these sayings? Well, again, it was what I mentioned and a little bit more. Denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, following me. And then Jesus said, right before they headed up, they're processing this, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Oh, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This upside-down kingdom that seems so recognizable and valuable and yet otherworldly, and, and, and I've never seen anything like this before. And that's what they're processing. That's what they're thinking about. So take a journey with me up Process Mountain. Just think about your own heart and your own life. How much do you value apologizing? Swallowing your pride. Admitting you're wrong. Sacrificing. Do you really value sacrifice? Yeah, sacrifice. That's, that's where it's at. Being generous and kind. Allowing God to humble you, or better yet, you humble yourself to be teachable and open. See, Jesus, that's the whole kingdom. And until you allow yourself to be open and broken and admit, you're not going to let the kingdom out. We had a small group a couple weeks ago. Got together a bunch of 20-somethings to go to the church. they thought there was only like three of them who attended, so we got about 15 to 20 of them who are getting together. And, and we're just talking about how to love better, how to comfort one another, how to love one another, all the one another's in the Bible. And as we were talking, one of the, the people in the group said, you know, one of the things that was a challenge for me is that I had a, a parent who was an addict, and that parent pretty much kept choosing the addiction over me. But God used that to bring me into an adoption process or some other parents, and I, I really have no connection with my birth parents. And we're talking about how to process with people, how to grieve with people. And I said, hey, do you mind if I ask you a follow-up question in front of everybody? And they said, no, that's fine. I said, would you say you're experiencing you know, grief over what your birth parents haven't done or anger or betrayal? She said, well, it's not grief. She said, because, you know, God's worked it out for the good. And we were talking about this love style called being an avoider. I said, well, the thing about avoiders, avoiders have the tendency not to like grief. And they're sort of like, well, it's all good now. Is it possible that your your avoiding tendencies are keeping you from grieving? I said, well, I never thought of it, to be honest, but maybe. I said, what emotion does come to mind? This person says, revenge. And often it's easier to identify anger, but right under anger is hurt. As we talked as a group, we were just talking about the brokenness of being honest with somebody else. Even yourself. Most of us don't want to be honest with our own brokenness of dealing with grief or dealing with anger. 
I was struggling with anger this last 24 hours over something that happened to me uh, yesterday. I was processing it with my future uh, son-in-law, Brandon. It wasn't about him, but just like, hey, I'm really angry about something. Help me bounce this off you. We just had a great conversation being, being broken and open about dealing with the stuff of life. So give yourself time to process, to really think about what does sacrifice look like? What is denying yourself, giving up your rights, not having to be right all the time, not having to prove yourself all the time, giving somebody grace or the benefit of the doubt? That's what happens during those eight days on Process Mountain. Then they come to Snow Mountain. Now, why do I call it Snow Mountain? Well, I think you'll see. Because Mount Hermon has snow on the top of it during winter season. So much so that there's actually a ski resort today you can go to. If you want to go ski, you can ski on the mountain that I believe Jesus was transfigured on. It's kind of cool, right? And so up here on Ski Mountain is on the top of, uh, of Mount Hermon is the place I think Jesus was with Peter, James, and John. Now, if you're not a skier, you may not recognize this, but you'll probably have something like it. You ever, if you go to a, a place to go skiing, often you put down this locker room. And when you're in the locker room, you're putting on your boots. And it's a little dimly lit at least certainly compared to, the, to the, the sun outside. And you get your boots on, you get your coat on, you get your gloves on, and you're ready to go. You grab your skis, you grab your ski poles. As you're heading out of this sort of dimly lit locker room, you open the doors and boom, as you do, light, oh, light from the sun is piercing into your eyes, so much so you can barely see, and you're trying to find your glasses or pull down your goggles. And it's not just the light from the sun, it's actually bouncing off of all the snow. If you've ever had a fresh snow, you know, it's beautiful, but it's blinding because the light is bouncing like laser beams in every direction and your eyes were dilated from the darkness and you're like, oh, what's going on here? Well, this is the exact experience the disciples are going to have with Jesus here on the snow mountain. So imagine it's winter season and Jesus is about to do what he's about to do and it's going to be ricocheted back and forth off snow mountain. And the sunrise of realizing who Jesus fully is is going to blind them like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. But it's going to blind them into sight. Oh my goodness. We've been hanging out for the last few months and years, not with a good teacher, but with God himself. Snow Mountain is going to reveal to them just how unfathomably valuable Jesus is and his kingdom is. Here's what happens in the passage. He's praying. Peter, James, and John apparently are, are a little drowsy, we'll find out in a moment. But they're, but they're watching. We're praying together. Oh, Jesus, may I pray for a while? But, but they're watching. And suddenly, as he's praying... The appearance of his face was altered, transfigured, metamorphosis, and his robe became white and glistened. And Jesus now, the full glory of who he is, is broken open. And the humanity is broken open so they can fully see the glory of who he is as the God-man. And if that mountain was covered with snow that day, imagine the light from that robe blinding them, bouncing off different sections of the snow. I mean, wherever you look, you couldn't even see. And as they're sort of falling down, looking at Jesus, wow, this is, this is not the man, this is not a teacher, it's God here. And as they look up, it's not just one figure, it's two, no, it's three. 
There's two guys standing with him. And as they look, they recognize it's Moses and Elijah. Behold, two men were talking with him who were Moses and Elijah. Now keep in mind, we're around 30 A.D. It's not like they've ever met Moses or met Elijah, but they recognize them. Something important to learn about that. We'll come back to that. Who appeared in glory, which is the word wait. So there's like this multi-dimensional portal open to the other world, the other kingdom. And they're like, wow, the weight of the other world, the reality of the kingdom, the beauty of the kingdom, the, the excellence of the kingdom gets fully revealed to them through the brokenness of Jesus' humanity. And as they're trying to take it in, and you're going to find it for a second, they're a little groggy. They overhear a conversation between Moses, Jesus, and Elijah. And they say, you know, they spoke of how his decease would accomplish great things in Jerusalem. His brokenness, his decease, which was about to accomplish great things in Jerusalem. Now, if I'm hanging out with Moses and Elijah, I've got a lot of things I want to talk about. At the top of my list is not brokenness, is not my impending death. More than that, the word used for decease here is one of three occurrences in the New Testament where the word actually is exodus. They were speaking about Jesus' exodus would accomplish great things for all people of all time. Now, imagine this. You're chatting with Moses who led Red Sea, plague, one, two, three, four, five, ten plagues. And Moses is like, yep, God gave me an exodus. But man, I'm so glad he sent me here because my exodus is nothing compared to the one God's going to use for you. Now there is so much we can learn here from this very unique glimpse God gives us into the other realm, into the kingdom, into who he is, into what happens when we die. So many things that are so painfully practical to you and I today. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, when you get a glimpse of heaven, which is what they've gotten, you come to realize that in the kingdom to come, you recognize people. That you're going to get to heaven and people don't need name tags anymore. Enoch. Methuselah. Mephibosheth. That the essence of who people are is going to be so self-evident that you're going to recognize my great-great-grandmother I never met. Grandma. My coach. The child I lost, a miscarriage. That neighbor I lost track with. That in heaven, number one, people are individuals. They're not energies that are recycled into something else. That the Christian view of individuality is so unique that you are who you are and you are living forever in that space. 
and that you will be recognized in heaven. The essence of who you are. No longer are you defined by what you do or don't do, what you wear or don't wear. The essence of you as an as a eternal being is what people recognize as. And number two, pain leads to glory. Moses and Elijah are saying, you know the thing we want to talk about? How decease, exodus, sacrificing, being broken accomplishes great things. That's what heaven's talking about. How brokenness is an unfathomable value. And if it's unfathomable value in the kingdom to come, why aren't we making it valuable in this kingdom? And that's why the word weight or glory shows us, are you giving weight to the things God gives weight to? There's weight in what matters. Beauty and power and self-sacrifice and denying yourself and, and giving yourself to other people. It also tells us that Moses and Elijah are not dead. The death is not the end. It's just a passageway to another dimension, another place, another kingdom. So you cannot just know, oh, I hope I'm going to see grandma again. I hope I'm going to see my child again. You can know because we have historic documents that show with eyewitness accounts, people saw people, not just Jesus' resurrection, that'll be more proof, who were dead but were alive again. And that is the hope of the gospel when you're grieving. It's the hope of Christianity as you process death, that death is not the end. And lastly, you see something that outweighs the pain of this world. Paul will go on, he'll say, the pains of this world will be overcome by the joy to come. And if you're going through a lot of pain, and it just seems like it's never going to quit, how good must heaven be that you'll forget about 10 years of being in agony? You're thinking, there ain't anything happy enough, big enough, or great enough to make me forget this. But the Bible says heaven is so good it will make the pains of this world disappear because of the surpassing joy and weight of the glory to come. I had two encounters with that this week. One was a week ago, I was talking to a friend who's you know, heading into his final you know, months or years struggling with a terminal illness, and I said, what, what's heaven? What are you looking forward to heaven? He said, I am so looking forward to being in perfect love, a place with, where perfectly acceptable between individuals, between you and God. The hope of heaven is, is that, little, that little vision they got for a moment of seeing heaven Oh, I want to be in that place. Perfect love. No division, no fights, no misunderstandings. Another friend, you know, maybe you know Patsy Hoffman, who attends here, and she, she gave me a call this week, caught my voicemail, and she's in hospice. And here's the message I get from her, something like this. Hey, Chad, <coughs> I'm in hospice. <coughs> but I was thinking of you. And I heard that your wife still got backish. <coughs> and I'm sorry I was so selfish that I didn't call to pray and let you know I was encouraging you and praying for your wife's back. But there's somebody who's putting weight in something besides her own suffering. It's very humbling. And whenever you're going through process it with God and then come to Snow Mountain and say, Jesus, I need a vision of you that is so clear and so real that I will value the things you value. I will see heaven for what it is and I will see my time between now and heaven as a time to bring heaven on earth. 
Because in the same way, the God glory was coming out of Jesus. In the New Testament, we find out that the Holy Spirit is put in us. We too are like earthen vessels, Corinthians says. And the glory of God is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And the way the Holy Spirit comes out is through brokenness. When you admit your faults, when you forgive, when you grieve, when you give yourself for someone else, when you swallow your pride, when you decide to hold your tongue, when you forgive, you're suffering, you're taking suffering upon yourself. The glory of God is revealed when we're broken. Thirdly, Tabernacle Mountain. So Tabernacle Mountain, after this encounter, they come to a conversation about how do you react to God's presence. And the point here is that if you really recognize heaven, if you ever had a vision of heaven like they've had, you start seeing this life differently. And you realize, I need to not pound my stakes too far into this world. There was a general during the Civil War, and so the men were sort of on their way to a big battle, but it was many, many days away. So they were just worn out from running quickly to get to the battlefront. So as they come to this one location, they're setting up their tents, they start pounding in the stakes, pounding in the stakes, and the general can hear it, and they're pounding hard. He comes before them and says, Ho, 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 guys, guys, don't pound those stakes too far in. We're moving out in the morning. And when you realize that this world is not our ultimate destiny, we're passing through, we're on our way to someplace else, you just don't pound your stakes too far in. You don't think your reputation is going to bring ultimate value because it can come and it can go. You don't pound your stakes too far in to your health as much as you love your health. You don't pound your stakes too far in to how you look. You don't pound your stakes too far in to money or to your status. All good things. But heaven reminds you they're not ultimate things and they're ultimately going to fail you. Every one of those things is going to fail you eventually. So don't pound your stakes too far into this world. It's temporary. It's passing. It's good. Enjoy it. But don't pound those stakes too far in. Learn how to tabernacle here. A tabernacle is a person who sets up a tent. Tabernacle means to live in a tent as you're passing through. You're a sojourner. You're a stranger and alien, Peter will tell us. And here's, here's what happens here. When Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. Well, I'm sorry you're bored, Peter. We got Elijah and Moses and the glory of God being revealed. <sighs> yeah, I've seen this one before. <sighs> Anything exciting on TV tonight? Apparently, this isn't keeping them interested. They're heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, whoa! They were awake before, but now they're fully awake to who God is. Fully awake to who Jesus really is. Fully awake to what heaven is like. Fully awake to what the kingdom is like. Fully awake to the value of brokenness. Fully awake to the value of sacrificing. They are fully awake now. And when they were fully awake, they saw His glory, the weight, the full essence of who God is, who Jesus is. And the two men who stood with Him, and when it happened, as they were parting from Him, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Wow, thanks for inviting us for this. Thanks for letting us be part of this. Thanks for letting us see this. I know what we need to do. We need to set up three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. Now some people think that's because 
Moses represented the Pentateuch, the books of the law. Elijah represented the prophets. And Jesus was the word made flesh, the writings. Some people believe this was his recognition that, oh my goodness, Moses gave us the tabernacle, the tent on how to live on earth. Jesus, we need to set up a tent. You are the tent of God coming to dwell with us. We got to set up a tabernacle. I get it. Whatever it is, the passage goes on and says, not really knowing fully what he said, he said this. Now, a little background here. When I was in Israel, we got a chance to climb this mountain. It's right on the south side of Israel uh, in Egypt, just on the border of Egypt, Mount Timnah. It's got the same color and texture of the mountain, although ten times higher than Moses climbed. We climbed all the way to the top. It took us two hours. Had a lady with us who was 90 who climbed with us. We get to the very top, incredible view, and our, our, our leader said, just know the real mountain that they think Jesus, that Moses climbed was about 90% higher. And he was about 85 when he climbed it. When Moses comes down from the mountain with the law, with the instructions from God, with the God wants to dwell with you, one of the main things he says is, I want to show you how God wants to tabernacle with you. And that's the word he uses. And so they actually have set up here a fully sized, fully functional, so you can examine what the tabernacle would be like. So we get to walk around the tabernacle, see the Levar, go into the Holy of Holies, see a makeshift uh, version of the, of, the, of the candlesticks and a version of the ark. It was amazing to see that there was this connection that when you encounter God in the cloud, the next thing that happens is tabernacle. You realize God dwelt with me as an invitation for me to dwell with others. And God, I want to learn how to dwell with others, how to tabernacle with others. And I think Peter's on to something. Many people sort of interpret this as, ah, oh, bonehead Peter. Oh, it's good to be here. We ought to set up a tabernacle. I think he gets it. In fact, let me give you a few more pieces here. There's incredible parallels to the way Luke has written this to show us that Jesus is the, the, the new Moses. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. They're stepping into the cloud. Always happened in the tabernacle, by the way. And a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And when the voice ceased and the cloud disappeared, hey, where'd Moses go? Hey, what happened to Elijah? Jesus was found alone. And they kept quiet. God just spoke and told no one of those, in those days the things they'd seen. And I referenced this before in Mark, but he, he actually does it again here, a string of pearls. That phrase, this is my son, my beloved son, he doesn't say in whom I'm well pleased. In this passage, he says, hear him. But he does the exact same thing I talked about in Mark two years ago. He strung together three pearls, three quotes from the three sections of the Bible. This is my son comes out of Psalms 2, the writings, that the Messiah would be the one that God turns to and says, this is my son. And God is saying there's a whole section of the Bible, the writings, that testify that he's the son. He says he's the beloved son whom I love. This comes out of Isaiah. The prophets. And this little quote here, my beloved son, the loved son, is a reference that all of the prophets testify that the Messiah would be here. And then he says, hear him, 
which comes out of the law, Deuteronomy, him, the Messiah, the one to come, you shall hear. And God is saying, verbally, this is my son, while simultaneously saying in all three sections of my word, testify this is the son. This is the guy to follow. This is the God man. This is me in the flesh. It wasn't just wishful lack of evidence. Christianity was rooted in evidence. And God masterfully strings us together. And then there's more evidence, because look how Luke constructs this. He constructs it to show that what Jesus did with the disciples mirrors what God did with Moses. On Moses' mountain in Exodus 24, you can look this up later if you want, there's a high mountain. In Jesus' mountain in Luke 8, high mountain. Three people Moses takes with him. Three people Jesus takes with him. A cloud covers the mountain when God comes to meet with Moses. A cloud just covered the mountain when Jesus met with the disciples. Glory is on the mountains and, and a, a figure's appearance has changed. Remember Moses' face glows? Jesus' face is tr- altered. Glory then settles on the mountain. Glory settles with Jesus. This all happens after six days and then God speaks. Luke is clearly trying to show us God has visited here just like he visited with Moses. Now, just to show you these passages, I'm not going to be able to read them specifically, but I, I color-coded. If you put Exodus 24 and 25 on one section and you put Luke 8, you will see all the different colors. There's the three, Aaron, Nabob, and Abu, Peter, James, and John. They went on a mountain to pray, come up to the mountain to meet me. They saw his glory, saw his glory. It's very clear the Holy Spirit and Luke are trying to tell you this is a significant moment in history. This is God dwelling or tabernacling with us. So what's the application to us? Well, I think we'll go back to that verse. I think it's a prayer and it's a practice. God, awaken me to who you are. Awaken me to what your kingdom is really about. Awaken me to denying myself. Awaken me. I want to be fully awake to who you are. Fully awake to what you prioritize. Fully awake to hope and grief. Fully awake to not pretending or being stoic about my pain. Fully awake to brokenness. Fully awake to your kingdom. And then I think it's God, teach me how to tabernacle. How to dwell with people. How to pass through life without pounding my stakes too far in. What does it look like for you and I to be fully awake and to tabernacle. My dad, about 13 years ago, told me about a family heirloom. He said, Chad, our family has a place up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I said, oh yeah, I remember going there as a kid. He said, but here's one thing I just realized a few years ago. When I was a kid, I went there, and because our ancestors came from Norway, All the letters sent from Norway were collected in our family cottage up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Now here's what I remember. We would come up to La Crosse, Wisconsin when I was 10. We'd come out the front door and and it would be like 50 steps to get to the river. Beautiful section of the river. Big 90 degree turn right there next to the house. So much so that it was large enough barges would come by. It was the Mississippi River. Barges would come by and have to gun it because of this big 90 degree turn. I came back when I was 13 came out the front door and it wasn't 50 steps it was about 25 steps till I got to the edge because of the barges and all that water they were pushing out 
Well, this is about 10 years ago. My dad wanted to know if I wanted to go with him to Sturgis on a motorcycle uh, journey. He said, we're going to stop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, because I think there's a treasure there. Like, what do you mean? He said, when I was real young, I remember collecting all these um, note cards and postcards that had been sent for, for 100 years, 50 years, whatever it was, from our family. I remember a postcard made out of a piece of bark, he said. And then I remember that each one of those postcards that spanned all this time had stamps on it. He said, and they asked me to clean it up one day. And I stuck all that, all those postcards, which just were ancient, with all those postages. And I took it into the back room. And I went into the closet. And there was one of those push-open ceiling areas. I put it up there, closed it, and I forgot about it. Years later, they drywalled over it. When we go up to La Crosse, Wisconsin, let's stop by and see if our house has been holding and in the presence of something of unfathomable value. I'm like, yeah. He says, we might have to break through some drywall. Might need to be some brokenness to discover the treasure, but let's do it. So we drive up to La Crosse, and we hadn't been there in years. Dad hadn't been there in years. We had no map. We come down this road. We think we're on the right road. Yeah, yeah, that looks like the neighbor's house. I think I remember that. And we come up to the neighbor's house. Like, yeah, that's it. And then we turn like, well, it can't be it because it's, it does look like a neighbor's house. I remember that. And I remember that tree. And I remember that. Well, here's another neighbor's house. And then there's this big plot of land here with no house. And the erosion... Seemed like it came back. Oh, the two neighbors built retaining walls. Somewhere, the Hoven house is somewhere near New Orleans, I would say. Because <laughs> all those years of erosion, the house fell into the river and got taken away with whatever treasure was in it. And I think there's one lesson we should learn from this passage is that time is short. Time is short. However many years we have, they aren't a lot of years. And if we don't come to grips with the glory of God, the value He has in us, if we don't come to grips with what it means for God to call us to be His light and His salt in the world, we're going to miss out. We're going to come to God one day and we're going to say, hey, I'm ready! He's going to say, yeah, yeah, but look, look, at, look at how many things flowed downstream because you didn't learn how to tabernacle. And you didn't recognize the unfathomable value of what I put in you, of who I am in you. You didn't push that into your, your, the way you see yourself. You didn't push that into the way you understand my love for you. You didn't push that way into understanding you're under no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You didn't push that into your call to, to help and to serve others. Don't wait any longer to access the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful encounter with the transfiguration. God, I would love just a reminder of that other world where the peace that passes understanding, the joy that overcomes grief and pain and heartache, teach me how to put weight into that world so that I only tabernacle in this one. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight.